Well, good morning, everybody. If uh, let me ask you a question: Where are you when people see you at your worst? Who are the people who know you and they see you? They see your failures and your flaws at the house, right? It's the people that you live with, and that's certainly true of me. In fact, I stand before uh, hundreds of people today, and I tell you that my wife has one big complaint about me. It's the flaw that is above every other flaw. It's the chief flaw of my life. And she'll tell you today, my biggest weakness is that I'm just too big of a servant. I just serve her and the family and everything, all the domestic needs. I just jump at it and it doesn't give other people a chance uh, to jump in. Let me borrow some retro black and white photos from 1955, a good housekeeping guide for men to illustrate my life and how I am uh, at home. With my ironclad fidelity and unwavering devotion, she knows that there's never be a rival for leading lady uh, in my heart. Photo number two, I have a nickname around the house. They call me the Titan of Tidiness, whether it's mowing the lawn or managing the maintenance of the swimming pool, uh, disposing of the rubbish around the house, uh, caring for the needs and cleanliness of the pet uh, indoors, whether it's putting clothes in the clothes hamper or putting the dirty dishes in the sink. Every night, I, br I draw her a bubble bath. Every morning, I bring her breakfast in bed. It's just me serving and serving and serving, and it's difficult for her. Photo three, um, I always put aside anything that could potentially distract me from hearing her, and I serve her by listening without any rival. The, our conversations are always peppered with courtesy, uh, and compliments, um, even a gentle rebuke I offer to her with the gift wrap of, uh, of love and good cheer. The proclamations of praise, the gentle whispers of love, she just loves these and relishes in these constantly. Another photo, whether it's her our anniversary or her birthday, she never has to wonder. In fact, I never need to be reminded. Reminding me to give her a lavish gift at her birthday or our anniversary is like reminding the sun to rise. It's just, it's not that needed. And gift after gift, celebration after celebration is joy and quite honestly just leaves her breathless. The next photo, uh, the Bible says uh, two are better than one. If one falls down, the other can lift them up. And when she's down, I pick her up. She ain't heavy. She's my wife. <laughs> Another photo. Hey, y'all know I preach it up here, right? The first 10% actually plus we give back to God through our local church. But all the other money that we have, I ask her daily, what do you need? How can I serve you by giving to you? Anybody believe any of this load that I've been... Yeah. <laughs> Let's just cut to the quick and let me get real with you, like really real. That was fake real. It's easy to study servanthood. I enjoy talking about servanthood. I enjoy reading about it. I champion it. I'm for serving. I'm pro-serving. I admire servanthood in other people. Like you, I want to come to church and be moved to be a better servant. This morning, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, in a moment we'll put it on the screen, but for many of you, you want to have an open Bible in front of you. Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, that's where we'll be today. And we're going to read a, a story that Jesus tells that is to current readers a little odd, a little strange. So I want to help us with some understanding of it. Luke 17, we'll only read verses 7 
through 10 today, and here we are. Will any of you, he's talking to his disciples, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and say, serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty? Does that seem like a strange story? Jesus is supposed to be about love. He's supposed to be about servanthood and humility. And here he tells a story of a master who is not grateful toward his servants. Now let's understand this because modern readers are going to hear it differently. There's going to be some walls of misunderstanding or offense when it comes to this story. So what do you think of when you think of servants? Years ago, when our daughter, who turned 18 this week, when she was about six years old, we were on a trip and we missed our connecting flight or they messed up our connecting flight. And we stayed at a hotel and they put us in a nice room in the hotel and we ordered room service. Y'all have done that, hadn't you? It's a really cool thing to call up the food and you eat it, enjoy it, and then you, when you're done, you just put it at, right in the hall and they come get it. Later, a few days later, she was bragging to some extended family, a little girl, and she was talking about the hotel and she said, and servants brought us our food. Servants back then is a little different. You know, there was, there was, it's a black eye on our culture. Uh, America and Britain, we understand this differently. Uh, think of, uh, the best way to translate it is into employee. And so these servants, I don't know if you realize this, there's misunderstanding about this. And in some ways we lose a debate that we ought not to lose. You know, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a, it's a, a condemning of slavery. There is a moral arc, a movement of greater equality and progression from old to new. But in Exodus 21 in, in the Old Testament, in 1 Timothy 1.10, these condemn slavery as we think about it. Slavery as in... Um, taking people and ripping them from their homeland and forcing them into labor and then treating them like a subhuman. And so that is condemned, but there was servanthood. It was like a, a, a voluntary indenture kind of thing. It was like a, a, a temporary adoption. And so people who needed it were taken in and they would work and they would be given room and board. They would be given, in many ways, love and protection and community. So translated employee. Think of it this way. Jesus is talking to his disciples and what seems odd is actually genius. That's the way it is with Jesus all the time. But Jesus tells this story. He appeals to the disciples and to their ego. If you're telling stories to people, that's a good place to start. If you're telling stories to men in particular, that's a really great place to start. Because there's something about us as humans, I would say particularly as men, where we want to be the top dog. And we think about our lives in terms of how we're ranked. And Jesus tells this story. And in one translation, it says this, suppose you're the master. All right, so he's got them. By the way, this is the group. This is the group who he caught more than once arguing about who was the greatest. So you know they've got a long way to go. If you walk into a room and you've got a group of leaders in a church or workplace or home and they're arguing about who the greatest, there is some discipleship that is needed, right? A heart change is necessary. And so Jesus knows this is that group of misfits that he has called a diverse group of men and he puts them as the master in this. And he gets them thinking one way and then at the end he flips it. And he talks about this story, we would think about it this way in terms of um, a workplace. Let's say that you're the boss we're starting with you being the boss. You're the top dog. But an employee comes in. One employee comes in and they uh, walk in and they, they get to their computer and they say, all right, I successfully executed my commute, 
my shoes match my outfit. I've turned on my computer. Now you, my so-called boss, you come and you work for me. I need a break. I'm going to the break room. In fact, I need a vacation and a pay raise. How would you treat them? And how would you also treat the one who just does what they say they're going to do or what they need to do or what's expected? And so it's not a story that we want it to be, but it's a story where essentially Jesus is saying this. He's saying to them, I want you to be great servants. But in order to be a great servant, you can't walk around asking yourself, am I rewarded? Am I valuable? Am I noticed? Am I being recognized? Let's stay in Luke. I'll tell you the text in just a moment because I want you to look and listen and be involved in this story. There's this unforgettable story in Luke's gospel earlier than Luke 17 of this story about the master and the servants. It's just this touching, unforgettable scene. Friday night, we went out with friends and we had a good day and a full day, real fun day. And we got home and we were just the two of us, my wife and I just plopped down on the couch. She looked at her phone to find a friend, to see where the kids were, to kind of check on them. And I was watching uh, the news in the background and she clued in as well. And I don't know if y'all saw this, the news broke on Friday, but out of El Paso, unfortunately. But this 60-something-year-old man, well into his 60s, he's a widower. His wife was one of the 22 who were shot and killed at the Walmart in El Paso. And all their family had, was already dead. They lived a solitary life, the both of them, a rural life and very solitary and didn't have a lot of friends. And he was worried that no one would come to his wife's funeral. Of all the funerals, this one was the last one. Some of y'all see this nod if you did. If you, if you saw it, you'll remember it. The last of the 22 who were shot and killed. The word gets out through the funeral home director and one of the ministers that this man was worried that not many would come to his wife's funeral. If you saw the story, you know that thousands showed up. Thousands of people in their hearts said, we want to love this man and we want to be here for him in his time of great loss. Thousands showed up. Y'all know the, what the weather in El Paso is? They, had, they packed out a place like this. Our place holds 800. It was packed out. And they had people waiting, thousands of people. So hundreds made it in and thousands were waiting outside. It would be like a line going toward and almost to Meadowbrook. Amazing in the El Paso heat. It was a moving, unforgettable scene. Fellas, you ever watch something like that and you, 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 know, you don't want to? You tell yourself you're not going to, but you cry. And you look over to see if she's crying. And I looked over and I, I was crying and Susan wasn't. <laughs> so let's, let's pray for her in her cold heart today. <laughs> that God would do a work in her. You know, there are some unforgettable scenes. I want to call your attention to one from this ancient text from the story of Jesus and how he ministered to people and how so many of his truths are paradoxical. And that with our hardness of heart, we'll miss them if we're not careful, if we don't lean into them. Jesus was invited as a visiting rabbi into the guest, to be a guest of a religious man named Simon. It was customary for that day for there to be certain protocol for hospitality. We have them in our day, don't we? There's, we uh, live in what is considered by many uh, to be the most hospitable part of our country. And so there's customs, things that we do. You do things, don't you? Before guests come over. And in that day, in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, it was super common for a few of the following. When someone came, a guest of honor came into your home, you would greet them with a kiss. 
How many of you are physically affectionate people? Like, you're okay with that. Like, just greet people uh, with a kiss. You're afraid to raise your hand? You shouldn't be if you're an affectionate person. I love that. I lived in South Florida. There's the Latin culture, the Cuban culture. It's very common for us. Most people, when you greet each other, you'd go, just like that. And when I first started doing it, it was strange. It was weird cooties and things like that, plus the religious things, the moral things that I was worried about. And then it just became good and natural. And then I moved away, and I, and I miss it. Like, so I'm going to bring it back. Y'all ready? We're going to bring back. Everybody just lean to the person. You don't know, even if you don't know them, just give them a little kiss. Go mm, mm, like that. No, don't do that. You weren't about to do that. But anyway, it was customary in that day to kiss. Y'all know the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss. And that just sounds weird to us. But it's a a way that we would translate, be affectionate. Express yourself and care for people and welcome them in. In biblical times, there was a a kiss as you greeted a, a, a guest to your home. If they were of equal rank, then you would greet them on the, you would kiss them on the cheek. If they were of special higher status, it was common to bow and kiss them on the wrist or the hand. In addition to the kiss of welcome, um, there was the washing of the feet. Particularly the evening meal, there was a ceremonial ritual in that time in Palestine where people, everyone, would wash themselves, including their feet, before the evening meal. And if the guest of honor comes and you were hosting, it was common that you would wash their feet. Also, there was oil. Y'all know, some of you know, I stood up here uh, several weeks ago and made fun of essential oils. Anybody here for that? Got a couple of emails. Y'all were nice. But uh, the first essential oil is actually in the Bible, olive oil. And olive oil was because of the desert dryness. It was used as a balm, as a way to bless people. Uh, People would anoint their guest on the head or the skin to say welcome. And uh, you need to oil up and not be so dry and crusty. So that was the way that they welcomed people then. A kiss of welcome, a washing of the feet, anointing of oil. And Jesus shows up. And anybody remember this story? What did Simon do for Jesus? None of it. And this is not some slight little omission. It's not subtle. It's very, in fact, it's a deliberate slap in the face. Jesus was ignored and insulted. And here a woman enters. Now I'm picturing, uh, learning from the times that there's a, a public nature to this at times. There was a courtyard, banquets were held in courtyards and like our beautiful sanctuary someone right now they'd they'd be severely late but they could walk in they could enter in and I hope uh, we would be limited in our distraction but we would welcome them in and this woman comes in and she's a woman of the street do you need me to translate she's a prostitute she's she works in the sex industry in a million years not in a million years would she have been invited into this And she comes in, you see, she had heard about Jesus, she had heard Jesus, and her heart was penetrated by his love that God loves everyone, and it's not too late. And so she walked in, and she had to be trembling with fear, because as a woman of the street, in a a town like this, uh, word was on the street, and she had a reputation, and so she had to be trembling with fear, plus there was this God man that she was hearing about and learning from and as she walked in trembling with fear and overcome with love she makes it in and what does she do she sees that Jesus had been insulted that he had been ignored no kiss no welcome no greeting no washing of feet no anointing with oil 
and her tears began to well up and like sort of like me on Friday night watching this story of El Paso about the funeral that uh, a man was afraid no one would attend her eyes well up with tears and those tears grow and she gets to this point where it's she's flooded with tears and she's kissing the feet of Jesus Jesus as custom would dictate is probably reclining now let me just stop as I did at 930 and just say everything's really weird and shocking and somewhat provocative about this story, isn't it? Like this is sort of like the EBGBs or something. But you see where we're going, don't we? You see that people, religious people in particular, need to be reminded of the lavish love of God and our response to that love. And it's not about decorum. In fact, it's about emptying yourself. And that's what this woman does. And I know, I just know when Jesus looked at her, just think about her. Think about her thinking that God loves me and I'm seeing it in this man and I'm hearing this message of God's love. It's not too late for me. You know, she was once a baby. She was once the object of someone's hopes and dreams, a parent, a mother, a father. But something went wrong along the way. It happens, doesn't it? You ever veered off course? Ever been in a, in a stretch of life where you are not in a good place? You're bound by an addiction, you're in rehab, you're covering up something deep and dark. And man after man, because of her profession, had looked at her. But they looked at her in the shadows of love. And here was a different look. Who knows if a man had ever looked at her like this, or it was the first time in a long time Jesus looks at her, not as an object, but as a sister, as a friend, as a daughter, as a human being created with worth and dignity. What does she do with the, these kisses that she placed on his feet, these tears that wet the area? She couldn't ask for a towel. She wasn't welcome there. So she lets down her hair. Do you know how scandalous that was back then? For a woman to let down her hair in public. In fact, if a married woman lets down her hair uh, to another man anywhere, that's grounds for divorce. And divorce was like that. Women didn't have high value in that day. Something we're still fighting for, Right? The gospel of Jesus, listen, it brings it. It brings it. And she takes her hair and she lets it down. And perfume flowed. It was a, it was a flannel, probably a, a perfume around her neck. The Bible says an alabaster jar of ointment. And she didn't just give a little. What do you give to God? When you worship, what do you give? What do you let go of? What do you hold on? Is it abundant or is it scarce? Are you worried about how you might look? And this woman lets it go. She empties it. And some scholars believe in this story that by emptying the perfume, you know, that was a part of her livelihood. She had to look good. She had to smell good. And by emptying it, it was not only an object uh, or an act of worship, rather. It was a way of saying, I'm going to have a new life. Jesus brings new things to a heart that knows they need help. And into this, Jesus looks. And he tells Simon a story and a quick story. And after the story, he asked him a question. Anybody remember this? The story went like this. Two people went and they had to borrow money from a lender. One man borrowed 50. The other man borrowed 500. Both could not repay their debt. Neither could, but both in Jesus' story were forgiven. And now the question that's at the heart of the gospel that I hope you get and I hope you appreciate, Jesus asked Simon which of these two men loved him more. Notice what he did there. We, we think in boxes. 
we have categories. We have file cabinets. There's, there's forgiveness, there's love, and Jesus ties love to forgiveness. Because he taught, he taught then and he teaches us that those who've been forgiven much will love much. And Simon got it right. Simon said, who's going to love that man more, the lender? Who's going to love him more? The one who borrowed more. The one he forgave more. And Jesus looks back at Simon and says, you have judged correctly. And then it's this scene that's just so moving. I don't want to miss the drama and the poignancy and beauty of it. Scripture tells us in Luke 7, by the way, this is in Luke 7, 36 to 50. And if you're in a small group, you'll be looking at this in your sermon discussion guide that we, I think we've already put up online. But in this story, Jesus looks, listen, he looks at the woman and he says to Simon, I came and you did not welcome me. No greeting, no kiss, no washing of the feet, no sense of welcome at all, but she has emptied it all and poured her life out to welcome me in. Luke 7, 47 goes like this. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Luke 7, verse 50. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you're in a group, you'll be able to discuss this with other people. If you're not in a group, get in a group. But two thoughts about this that I want to share with you. She, by contrast, she needed grace for a heart that was broken. He, Simon, needed grace for a heart that was hard. God forgives both. I can't help but think, though, that the heart that's further away the heart that's less likely to find the love of a Savior and the free gift of the gospel is the heart that is hard. I want to talk to you for a moment about what a servant looks like or what the heart of a servant really is. And Jesus tells this story to let us know that to the extent that you're loved is the extent that you're free. And the extent that you're free and not driven by your insecurities is the extent that you can serve other people. You see, we don't have, we'll put it up in a moment, we don't have a serve, pro, a serve problem, we have a love problem. And all of us walk around with questions inherent to our being. Am I noticed? Am I, will I be rewarded? Am I valued? Am I loved? Will I be admired? And the gospel says this, are you important? Infinitely. Do you matter ultimately? Are you loved completely? And thus you are free to serve. I don't have to worry about people patting me on the back and telling me how great I am. I don't worry, I don't have to worry that I get a bigger slice of the pie than you do. I don't have to worry about how many feathers you have in your cap compared to mine. I don't need somebody to tell me that I'm great and that I'm loved. In fact, God in Jesus has done all of that and so much more. And so then I'm free. I am free to serve. Not worried about the reward. Not worried about the honor. In fact, Dallas Willard talks about this. You know, he's my favorite writer. I'm trying to tip you off to read from Dallas Willard. But he talks about one of the signs of spiritual maturity is what you no longer think about. And you think about it, God's been good to me to give me friends. Um, maybe some of you this morning who 
I've walked with for many years and learned your story of sobriety. I've learned your struggle with your addiction. I've learned your enslavement to a substance. And I've learned from my friends, my brothers and my sisters, that that first day, that first week, that first month of sobriety, what are you thinking about? If it's alcohol, you're thinking about alcohol every moment. Can I go this day without? Can I go this week? Can I make it? But you talk to someone who's been sober for 20 years and they're free to think more interesting thoughts. They're not past it. They don't need to let, allow pride to take the throne of their life again. They don't need to be unneedy. But they're thinking other things. It's not the thoughts that it used to be. And so it should be with a servant, with one who wants to serve Christ and the world in which we live. We're not looking for that from other people. You see, sometimes when I'm hesitant to serve, I'm insecure. And I'm wanting you to see. I'm wanting you to notice. And I'm wanting to be valued. And love speaks into that in the gospel. My pastor's heart tells me, along with these stories, I want to tell you three things that are myths about serving because some of us uh, need to hear it. I think I do. Three myths of serving. Great people don't serve. Jesus shattered that. In fact, he talked about doing many of our acts of service hidden, quiet, not to be seen. And you know, if you're honest, the human spirit just screams against that. To do something good and not get any credit? Let me ask you quickly, has that gotten better or worse in a social media world? Honestly, almost impossible. Hey, Jesus, we need to talk. It's 2019. But to do servanthood and do it without being seen rewarded great people don't serve is a myth Jesus shatters that secondly there's my pastor's heart here it's the wife's job to serve her husband and not vice versa some people are foolish enough to think that the Bible actually teaches that and so let me drop the Bible on you husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her it's not a one way it's both one pastor that i know calls submission he says it's it's a submission competition it's it's two looking to serve each other and unfortunately too often it's one way thirdly and similarly being a servant is being a doormat that's a myth some of you might be in a relationship where it's very one-sided it's not an equal partnership and you feel like a doormat. You're doing the yeoman's work. And I want to say to you, get guidance, get help, get counseling. You're going to have to have probably courageous conversations to move forward. But being a servant is not being a doormat. And I'm not standing up here asking anybody to be a doormat today because that's not the heart of Jesus. So, as we said earlier, this idea that if you're a note taker, I want you to get it down. We don't have a serve problem. We have a love problem. Question, what if we, as a faith family, what if we got serious about following Jesus? What if, what if we became extraordinary servants? Do you understand the New Testament idea of church is for us to be a family, uh, not a business, even though there are business principles and wise stewardship, but it's, it's, the goal is for us to be a family, to have a father, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, to be brothers and sisters and grow together. And God appoints the church with leaders and leaders have gifts and the character of the leaders really matter. And the, and the 
Everyone should discover their gift and deploy it in service to other people. Humbly, Galatians 5.13, humbly serve one another in love if you were here last week. Our job, my job, is to lead a handful of people to lead you well and to give you opportunities so that you can, won't just come here and go, ah, oh, serving is a good idea. We won't just give you ideas to serve, but we'll give you avenues and on-ramps where you can serve other people. We'll empower you and equip you to serve others. Currently, there are a few ways that you can serve right here. Children's ministry, Red Door, and Group Life are three avenues. There are so many more. Some of you know, I have to confess to you as a church, that I have an appropriate relationship with our children's minister. I hope you heard that, but Susan, my wife, is our kids' minister. She came home beaming the other day. It always brings joy to her heart to see some of our rock stars. Do you know that we have rock stars in kids' ministry? In churches, I'm going to say it, not to guilt or shame, just to inform, maybe inspire, but churches, particularly American churches, particularly American churches that are moving toward grow and growing, there's a lot of people who come in and they don't say it out loud, but essentially they're saying, Preach to me, sing to me, watch my kids for me, minister to me, but don't ask me to do anything. And Fondren, like uh, any church that's growing toward health and vitality, we've got some rock stars, don't we? Particularly in the children's ministry. Jimmy Stewart and Amelia Medcalf and John and Lindsay Lassiter and Theresa McCall, but I shouldn't have started naming names because I'm forgetting people. I did that in the 930 and had two people get mad because they're, uh, they felt like unworthy servants and needed honor. But... We have people that step up and serve. Raymond Kennedy in our small group has jumped into children's ministry to help. And he told us at our small group Wednesday night, I love kids and love working with kids. A bad thing to say around the children's minister. But we need people who will invest in the next generation. Does that get anybody excited? Rather than coming and sitting and soaking, it's rewarding and it's good and it's needed. Not just to hold on babies, but to love children and invest in them. It's not just child care slash wild care going on over there. They're actually learning Bible stories. And it, it's a really good ministry and a wonderful way to invest. And we need people. We need more people to come around those rock stars as they serve our kids. I text Emily Harden on Friday and said, are you good? Do you need any more people? And she said, yes. Red Door is our ministry as we tutor kids in West Fondra neighborhood predominantly. Uh, kids, many of whom don't have a father, but they get at least an hour and a half of positive input and interaction here at Fondra and Church. Some of you uh, serve in this area. We need more people. We need people to donate backpacks and fill backpacks. We need tutors and substitute teachers and more people are needed to invest in this next generation. Does that excite anybody? We need more people to help. Group life. Uh, this is where I hope that our church will grow. We want to get you out of rows and into circles. Several years ago, um, a pastor I know in Texas put up these three I words in a book called The Connecting Church. I pray that we're a connecting church. These three words, inspiration, involvement, and instruction. If you're a note taker next to the word inspiration, write Sunday morning. It's the goal of Sunday morning. There's probably several goals, but chiefly, we want you to be inspired. We want to preach the truth and offer you hope and that you'll leave inspired to trust Him more, to know that you're loved, and it'll inspire you. Next to the word involvement, write group life. This is when we get in circles and we share life with each other. 
part of our dinner on Friday night, I sat across from a, a man who is, I think is about 33 years old. He's a friend of mine. He was telling me briefly about their group. And if I understood him right, he said, we love our group. In fact, we would have uh, probably wouldn't be at Fondren if it wasn't for our group because it's friends. Like your preaching's fine, Robert, but it's really the group that, that I enjoy. And he uh, talked about, you know, at their group, uh, 30 minutes, they eat and share a meal together. And for 30 minutes, they open their Bibles and discuss the sermon. And some of you may think, well, that's, you know, that's not deep enough. It's not deep enough. Listen, I'm for deep. I'm for deep. But most of us are educated way beyond our level of obedience. Most of us need to take what we already know and learn to apply it. And let me tell you how that gets worked in right there. Not in isolation, but involvement where we love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, confess our sins to one another, provoke one another to love and good deeds. Let me just say, that's deep. That's really, really deep, and it's what we need. So that's what involvement is. And my friend said, 30 minutes we share a meal, 30 minutes we open the Bible and discuss the sermon, and then for 30 minutes the girls go here and the guys go here, we share our stories and talk about life, and I love my group. We need more people to lead that. And do you know to lead, especially if you do a sermon-based group, you don't need to be a preacher or a teacher. You don't need to be a scholar or some content expert. You can print out the study guide and open up your home or meet at a coffee shop or up here and circle up with some friends. And we need, we need group leaders to help us move forward, to be more of a connecting church. The last word, instruction, write personal study, write classes, write seminary. Uh, we're trying to grow as a church. Um, in this area and you will probably see us in the future offering some classes how to study the bible how to teach the bible how to manage your finances how to move your marriage forward a lot of offerings that we want to make here in the future but these are the areas that we want to grow stronger and stronger in and we need people to step in and serve i was on vacation colorado last month and connected um, in fort collins with a pastor friend who's in longmont colorado and he was telling me the story of a, happened a year back where a student, high school student, committed suicide. And of course, they were shook up. Stay with me. The high school called my pastor friend and asked my pastor friend the day of when the students were coming into school and learning the news and their hearts were breaking. They called the pastor and said, could you come and bring 20 of your folks to be here for the students all day to day and all as long as we need you and I was moved and I asked him how do you get access like that and he said Robert we've been serving at that school for a long time and these 20 people they called to the school were taping ankles for the athletes raking out the sand at the track uh, loving on the students and being there and being a presence and that's what happens servants get access to king's palaces do you know that when we serve other people we have the world's attention and this is where the church we're not irresistible anymore because we've lost the heart of jesus and let's serve look we need you to serve us i asked nick crawford not too long ago how many people does it take to pull off a sunday morning do you know i didn't know so you're not going to know it takes about a hundred people to pull off a sunday morning from worship to greeters to people at check-in to pointing people where to go to people in the parking lot who serve on a hot August day to children's ministry and student ministry and all that you see around you coffee making the coffee making the donuts you say we don't have donuts that's what I'm talking about nobody <laughs> look look at me it's almost time to go nobody's making the donuts we need people to step up and serve to serve here to make a difference 
This same pastor was telling me about 700 people, you know that's about the size of our church, that 700 people employed themselves for thousands of hours serving 29 different human agencies and ministries across their metro area. Thousands, hundreds giving thousands of hours serving in uh, public schools and mobile homes and trailer parks. They opened up the church parking lot to single moms and guys got out there and serviced cars, changed oil and all of that. They came up, he told me, this boggles my mind. I was telling Nick this week. They came up with 5,000 different ways to serve their city. Isn't that remarkable? I almost feel like we don't have an excuse. I almost feel like that I shouldn't apologize to any of you for standing up here today and telling you what the American church is like. That most of us come and say, preach to me, sing to me, minister to me, watch my kids, but don't ask me to do anything. And I almost feel like I shouldn't apologize for dropping that on you today. Let us create an environment where we serve. And it's not just serve us. It's way beyond a Sunday morning, although we need that. It's service. It's humbly serving one another in love. Lining our lives with the irresistibility of the gospel. It's time for the preacher to quit. Let me pray for us as our team comes up. Father, I do confess, I've joked about it, but at home and in key situations, sometimes I look to be served I look for recognition and honor in the absence of giving honor and serving others. God, we're riddled. We're, we're humans. We're flawed and sinful and broken and full of insecurities. And I would pray today that this, this life of Jesus would instruct us and inspire us for deeper and greater involvement. God, I pray against the hardness of our hearts and I pray towards the softening of them. And whether it's the person who enters today with deep shame over private personal sins and addictions and struggles or the person with pride who sits here today thinking of their accomplishments, their spiritual lineage, their reputation, but whose heart they may not even know has grown hard. Both need your grace. All of us need your grace. Jesus, we pray. Amen. This altar is open. I would encourage you today to come and to kneel and to pray. You probably don't have an alabaster joy, a jar of ointment around your neck. It's carrying some bottle of perfume, but your life could be so contained, not emptied at all. Would you today consider emptying your heart with praise to grab one of us down front? Like, I'll stand here and look at y'all for a whole song. If you make me, I'll do that. Or I can embrace one or a few of you and pray for you and this altar is open if you're a leader in the church I pray you wouldn't be ashamed at times to pray and to seek him to pray that God would work on your heart of servanthood and ours as well for someone who's serving 
serving long and serving well. Galatians 6, that verse, of chapter after, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. It says, don't grow weary in doing good. And if you're weary today, let me tell you, God sees. And you may not be rewarded publicly, but God sees. And don't grow weary in that. You come today if God leads.